Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so. Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending saith the Lord, which is and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I greet you in that precious name of Jesus, the one who is the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. The one who was humbled, the one who took on the form of a servant. And because of his humility and because of his willingness to go through with God's plan for him and sacrificing his own body on the tree, God exalted him and given, has given him a name which is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In your mind's eye this morning, I would invite you to look at three spots, three small places of real estate the one was in the garden where Luke describes how he sweated drops of blood it says he sweated as it were drops of blood now I don't know if that's literal or if that's some kind of figure of speech where it says, as it were. I think it's probably literal. Apparently there's this phenomenon that can actually happen when a person is under severe stress. That his sweat becomes bloody. I think that's the likelihood of what that passage is talking about. So think of that puddle of bloody sweat in Gethsemane. The next spot isn't real far from there, just across the Kidron Valley and up in the city of Jerusalem in Pilate's Hall. Where after Pilate had condemned him, think of this, Pilate had condemned him to die, but the sadistic monster he was, he condemned him to be beaten before he was killed.
And there in Pilate's hall is another puddle of blood. And I suppose there was other places around there where they drove the crown of thorns down on him. And they smelt him and they buffeted him with their hands and they mocked him. I suppose there was probably some blood around there as well. I suppose there was a trail of blood between Pilate's Hall and Calvary. Where after his clothes were saturated with blood that the blood trickled down and marked his path. The other spot that you should think about is at the cross. Crucifixion itself likely wasn't very bloody. Just a small hole in each wrist and through each foot. Probably didn't elicit that much bleeding. But as he was dying, or perhaps already dead, a soldier with a spear says he pierced his side. And forthwith there flowed blood and water. Unto him that loved us. And washed us. From our sins in his own blood. Why washing? Let's think about washing this morning. Being washed in Jesus' blood. That's what I like to think about as a theme for the sermon this morning. What's with washing? How can blood wash anything? See, washing is a routine part of any civilization. We wash our clothes, we wash the car, we wash the floor, we wash our hands. We take a shower, we wash our food. We're familiar with washing. We wash to get rid of dirt and pollution and dust and grime that's on us and on the things that we want to wear and on the things that we want to eat. And we use water and we use soap. To wash and we rinse it off with clear, the clearest and purest water that we can find. And we're familiar with that. But here it's washing from our sins in his own blood. And the idea is, is that we are just like we ourselves become in a physical sense. We become soiled and polluted. We, in a spiritual sense, are soiled and polluted and we're dirty from sin. Now just imagine with me that perhaps you were living close by the nuclear reactor accident in Ukraine. I think it was back in 86 or something like that in Chernobyl. 
and you were exposed to radioactive dust and you were exposed to it and it's making you sick. And you know that if you don't get rid of this dust, it's going to put your, um, what is it, the R count or something like that, up into terminal levels and it's going to kill you and you have to get rid of this dirt and try as you might, you can't get it off. And you just try to wipe it off your arm and the hand that you use to wipe yourself with just gets dirtier than it was before. And you know that this pollution, this dust is going to make you sick and it's going to kill you. It's terminal. Now just imagine yourself in that situation and think of how precious the bomb would be that would wash that pollution off of you. And not only would it wash away the cause of your sickness and your impending death, but it would restore you to a vitality that you'd never experienced beforehand. And that's how it is with sin, and that's how it is with being washed with Jesus' blood. Sin is a poisonous infection that pollutes you and harms you, and it will eventually kill you unless... There's something done about it. And this is a problem that has infected man ever since our first parents were in the Garden of Eden. We read that story in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the servant, we may eat of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes of the tree, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden and the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him where art thou and he said I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself and he said who told thee that thou was naked hast thou eaten of the tree whereof, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat and the man said the woman which whom thou gavest to be with me she gave me of the tree and I did eat and the Lord God said unto the woman what is this that thou hast done and the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Now there's something that's fascinating here. And that is that Eve's perception of God's law seems to be that she saw it as a restriction and not as a blessing. In fact, she adds to the restriction that she adds a restriction onto it that apparently God hadn't. God had said, Ye shall not eat of it. But she added, neither shall ye touch it. 
lest ye die. I think that's instructive for us. God's commands are clear and they stand. But to add to them is to cloud them. It's to make them our own and not God's. And once we've clouded them, it's easier for us to violate them. When we add to them, it's easier to take away from them. And no longer is God's commandment exclusively His and His alone to judge. They become ours in a sense. When we add to the command, we are making it man-centered. And in doing so, we think that we can also judge now. If we are the rule makers, we are the arbiters of the rules, and we can be the rule breakers, and everything's fine. But what we're doing is we are attempting to take away God's sovereignty. We are putting ourselves in God's place. Satan's promise was, ye shall be as gods, and this appealed to them. But it can never be that way. God is God, and God is God alone. He created the world, and He stands as sovereign over it. And so when he said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This was going to stand. This was a sure thing. But this was not so much a promise of physical death as it was a promise of spiritual death. And suddenly they became guilty. They were spiritually dead. They were estranged from fellowship and from communion with God. And they became aware of it. They became self-conscious. They were afraid of God's presence. They became drawn to the darkness rather than to light. They hid themselves in the darkness rather than walking in communion and in fellowship with God. And so sin has left its mark across the historical record from that time till now. Think of the condition of the world before the flood when only Noah and his family were counted worthy of deliverance. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed by their sin. Not even ten righteous people within its walls. Think of the sins of Jeroboam, who it says he was the king who made Israel to sin. Think of Manasseh, the Judean king, who shed innocent blood until Jerusalem was filled of it, was full of it from one end to the other, it says. Or more recently, think of the bloodshed of the 20th century in which there were more people killed in the 20th century than in the previous 19 combined. Think of that. And then people think that somehow mankind is civilizing themselves. Think of Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and Chairman Mao. Think of the horrific bloodshed of the First and the Second World Wars. Sin has left an awful mark. And so sin, while its origin is so ancient... Its history is so dark, it's very real today. We can think of the marks of sin we witness across the world today. We can think of the conflicts across the world in in Afghanistan. We think of the refugee crisis in the Middle East. We think of the epidemic of drug overdoses and the burgeoning violence in our inner cities and all so on. All these are vivid reminders of man's sin and of our sinful nature. And we may be so glad that we don't have to experience those things, but it gets closer than that. Perhaps you have an alcoholic neighbor. Perhaps you know of a woman who has slept around a lot. You know of a guy in prison who's molested for, for molesting a child and so on. But Jesus would have us recognize that sin gets a lot closer than that. It's not just the other. 
Sin begins before the act, Jesus taught. It begins with the desire to act. Hatred, he classed with murder and lust as adultery. And such a high standard of righteousness surely condemns all of us. If the attitudes we hold and our heart's desires and the motives that drive us reveal our nature, then surely we are all guilty. And we are all under the same sentence in the day that you eat of it, ye shall surely die. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So death, that enemy of ours, that perennial enemy of ours, is a result of sin. And even while it is something that none of us has experienced, it is close to us. Just a bit over a week ago, Anna Esch died. Those of you who knew her, knew her as probably one of the liveliest people that you could think of ever meeting. But close to 20 years ago, she contracted some kind of palsy and her health was drugged down. She could hardly eat for a long, long time. And just before she died, she weighed less than 70 pounds. A woman who was once a picture of vibrant life. Her suffering and her death remind us of the effect of sin. This past week, my cousin's wife took her own life. Her death is a result of sin. And apart from having been washed in Jesus' blood, we are sinful and dirty and polluted and we stand under condemnation. We stand under the sentence of sin, which is death. And so we stand in the need of cleansing. So I hope you can bear with me. I have a lot of scriptures that I'd like to read this morning. Kind of beginning at the Old Testament, just, just unfolding this through the New Testament, through the New Covenant, this idea of washing. In the Old Testament, is kind of foggy and nebulous. They had to wash ceremonially. They had to do this and they had to do that. All these kinds of things. I'm not going to read a lot of these passages. But there was an idea that God was trying to put into their minds and into ours is that we must be washed to come into God's presence. Now this idea of washing is first mentioned. This idea of washing to be worthy to come into God's presence is first mentioned, I believe, when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and preparing themselves to receive the law. This is in Exodus 19. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid them and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. 
And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to thee, and may believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the Lord, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. So here was the first instance of some kind of preparation in uh, be- before that someone was to meet God and they were supposed to wash their clothes. And this idea of washing was reinforced in tabernacle worship. Exodus 30, the Lord spake unto Moses saying, Thou shalt make a labor of brass and his foot also of brass to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein, from Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and his feet thereat. When they go in into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. When they come near to the altar to minister and to burn offerings made by fire unto the Lord, so shall they wash their hands and their feet that they die not. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. So this idea of washing, it wasn't so much to get rid of the dirt as it was it was symbolizing something. It was symbolizing something that was to come. They also had a washing ceremony to restore a leper. And he that is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and wash himself with water that he may be clean. In Psalm 51, we have David's prayer of repentance recorded after he had sinned in that dastardly affair with Bathsheba and had tried to cover it up by bringing Uriah, her husband, home. When that didn't work, he had him killed. And Nathan the prophet confronts him with his parable of the rich man and the poor man, the rich man having many, many sheep and the poor man having one little ewe lamb that lived with him in his house. And the rich man entertained a guest one day and he, instead of reaching into his own flocks, he reached into his neighbor's house and took that one little ewe lamb and killed it and served it for the guest. And this upset David so bad. See, a guilty conscience doesn't isn't rational. This upset David so bad he condemned this rich man to death. And Nathan the prophet said, you are the man. And David repented a sincere repentance. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to the loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And I suppose this reference to hyssop may well be a reference to that Passover lamb when they were supposed to take a branch of hyssop and dip it in the basin when the Passover lamb uh, 
when the, the blood of the Passover lamb had been spilled into it, and they were supposed to use a branch of hyssop to, to paint this or to strike this on the doorpost and the little. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. David's prayer, I think, was probably a reference to being cleansed by the sacrifice of blood. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In back of that picture, there is a, a picture of, of cleansing and of washing. And the prophets saw, Ezekiel saw, and Zechariah saw that the ritual cleansing in the Old Covenant was insufficient to cleanse the heart. And they saw another day coming. Ezekiel. In 36 writes, For I will take from you, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries, and I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle you with clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you, and a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. So now we have this idea of being cleansed and being changed. So this, this idea of cleansing has to do with an inner heart transformation. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, there's a prophecy that is just so beautiful. And we sing a song often that is in reference to this song, to this verse in Zechariah chapter 13. In that day there shall be a fountain opened in the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners washed beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. In that day there should be a fountain opened in the house of David. And this theme of washing is continued in the New Testament. And this is now Peter in John 13, where Jesus is teaching them about feet washing. Peter says unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter says unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. So here's a washing and a cleansing that is not outward. It's symbolized in this feet washing ceremony, but there's something inner that's happening here. First Corinthians 6, 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so there's this washing that's transforming this this thief and this covetous man, this drunkard, this fornicator, and all these guys, they're transforming them and they are washing and sanctifying them. And they are giving them, they are justifying them in the name of the Lord Jesus. They are washed from their sins. 
Hebrews 5, verse 25 and following. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So, Christ loved the church, gave himself for it, so that, He can present it to himself a glorious church. He gave himself for it so that he could sanctify it and cleanse it. So he offered his body. He offered his he shed his blood so that the church could be sanctified. He offered and shed his blood so that the church could be cleansed. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. His offering of himself bodily on the cross is the means of the church's cleansing. For we ourselves, Paul writes to Timothy, were also sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So here again we have this picture of being washed, and uh, there's something being shed on us. It's being poured out over us. And that's the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And this idea of being washed is the same as having our sins forgiven. Colossians 1, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So now we have this idea of washing being attached to being forgiven from our sins. It's the same idea as being sanctified and being made pure. It's not hard to see the parallel between sanctification, being washed from our sins in the blood of Jesus. This sanctification is just kind of a theological way of expressing what being washed by the blood of Jesus is about. It also has the idea of justification. This is another theological term, and that means being declared righteous. That's the idea of justification. But there's much made of this idea of being declared righteous. And sometimes it's portrayed as being declared righteous over against the idea of being actually being made righteous. And I think that's just terribly unfortunate. Because to be justified is not just to be declared right, but it's to be made right. To be declared righteous can never be a lie. To be de to declare a sinner as is to declare a sinner in his sin as 
righteous would render the one who is doing the declaring as a liar. And so that would leave the fate of the one who's in question in the hands of a capricious and arbitrary liar. I hope you follow that. To declare a sinner in his sin as righteous would render the one who's doing the declaring a liar. And it would leave the fate of the one who's in question in the hands of a capricious and arbitrary liar. That can never be. Justification has to make the person right. It declares him right, but it has to make him right. It will sanctify and cleanse and wash him and change him and renew him. This is justification. Abraham was declared righteous being yet uncircumcised. That's what Romans tells us and that's exactly how it was. And he was declared righteous on account of his faith before he was circumcised, before he had acted upon his faith. But it is also faith, it is also obvious that the faith he had was a living and moving and obedient faith because he went and moved and he became circumcised and he circumcised his house. By faith when he was called to go, he obeyed. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise because he looked for a city which hath foundation whose builder and maker is God. By faith when he was tried, he offered up Isaac. So the faith that he had was a real and genuine and motivating faith. It would have been impossible for God to declare Abraham righteous if he would not have been righteous, if he would not have believed him. And so when his soul is washed in the blood of Jesus, he is changed, he is born again, he is walking in the power of the resurrection, he is walking in newness of life, and he can be declared righteous because he is in fact righteous. Not by the righteousness of works which we have done, not in the keeping of the law, but it is a righteousness which is by faith. That faith of Jesus Christ. It is righteousness by faith, a living, loving, obedient, motivating faith. Galatians 2 verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the faith, I live by. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Being washed in Jesus' blood also has the idea of being given a robe of righteousness. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. In Revelations 19 we read, For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. In Zechariah chapter 3, we have this vision of Joshua the high priest. can't find the book of Zechariah just right now. I'll, I'll find it here in a second. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? 
Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thy iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with raiments. This is the garment of righteousness. Zechariah saw it. John saw it. Jesus talked about in Matthew 22, he gave us the parable of the wedding banquet. And in that parable, there is a wedding made. And there's a man comes in the wedding and he didn't have on a wedding garment. And he was cast out. But so often this parable is misunderstood. As far as I can tell, the wedding garment portrays the guests as righteous. They aren't dirty with only a garment to cover their filthy bodies. The man that was thrown out was thrown out because he wasn't prepared for the wedding. He had shown up unrighteous and was cast out as such. It's not that he was unrighteous and merely was given a garment to cover his unrighteousness. Psalm 45 says, The king's daughter is all glorious within, and her clothing is of wrought gold. So the king's daughter... And us together are glorious within. We are righteous within. And we have a clothing rod of gold. And that is what's happening. On the cross. As Jesus is giving his life. That is what is happening. As she is shedding his blood. He is offering his life. As atonement. Not for our sins. But for the sins of the whole world. And it is by believing in Him. It is by turning from our sins and living for Him. It is by accepting His sacrifice that our sins are washed and we can come boldly to the throne of grace. That He should give His life for those who hated Him. That He should give His life for those who were indifferent. That he should give his life for us is a miracle of the grace of God. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think of those three spots over there in and around Jerusalem. And think of the blood that was shed that was marking those places. It was running down off of his body. And think of how that you can be washed and cleansed, not from a physical problem, but from the spiritual problem of sin. And how that you can... Because of that, you can be regenerated. You can be renewed because of what Jesus has done for you. And he has brought people from here and he has brought people from there. He has brought people that were at enmity with each other. And he has brought them into communion and fellowship with each other by the blood of his cross. And that is what we want to celebrate and remember this morning.
Let's have a song as Caleb prepares the table.